Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Rebecca Oxford, Professor Emerita and Distinguished Scholar Teacher at the University of Maryland. Dr. Oxford, welcome to Lost in Citations. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for stopping by, uh, so to speak, virtually, before you join the JOUT conference online. You got This is a big week for you. You're, you're doing lots of stuff, and good thing you're a night owl. Yeah, it's a good thing. <laughs> and so it's a real blessing. By the way, call me Rebecca, if that would be good with uh, you and the audience. Sure, no problem. So are you excited for the weekend? This is, I, I saw a previous interview. I think you said this is the first time you've presented at JALT. Yes. Um, they have been trying to get me there for a long time, and I have been uh, unable to go at various times uh, because of work. Mm -hmm. So I'm so excited. Um, I wish that we were actually there in person because I know some of those people, I'd love to see them. But uh, being on Zoom with the JALT group is uh, is wonderful. Well, quickly, let's just give some information to anyone interested in the JALT conference. We're going to post this episode the day before you present. You have a few sessions. One session is called Natural Harmony, Teaching Language, Teaching Peace. And you can uh, check these out on the, the JALT website. It's um, in Japan time. It's 9.30 a.m. for an hour. Next session is exciting, practical language activities for peace building. That's on Sunday, uh, 9.30 a.m. Japan time. And then you have a panel discussion and the closing ceremony that is Monday at 2 o'clock Japan time. So <laughs> that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. But this this information is all up on on the website, and I think Jout does a pretty good job of of publicizing events. Yeah, they are great. What about you? Do you what what time do you normally go to sleep? Is this going to be a difficult because <laughs> that, that's kind of all over the place. I mean, the first two see nine thirty a.m. Japan time, so that is that's not too bad, right? That's seven thirty p.m. your time. Something like that, I, right? Yeah, something like that. Uh, I think it's actually later than that. But anyway, um, I am I am rather flexible. You might say my timing is a little um, erratic, so I figure I can handle anything. <laughs> my, my normal schedule is weird, so uh, I can fit in with other people's usually. All right, so we have a lot to talk about today. Of course, we're not going to be able to hit all the topics and it's really a, an honor and privilege to to talk with you. Uh, the book we're going to talk about today is a recent book. Now, I ha I have the citation is 2020, but I, I saw on your on your website or somewhere that it's 2021. Peace building yes. in language education, innovations in theory and practice. Should I mark the citation 2020 or 2021? Well, uh, it came out in early November, but the publisher's copyright date. Uh, is 2021 because we're at the end of the year almost. I see. So so they put everything in 2021 if it's this time of year. Well, I think this is a very good subject. Um, again, we don't want to talk about politics at all 
but with with the events of the world and certain figures using <coughs> using certain types of language, everyone is a bit uh, anxious at times and aggressive at times. And I think I'm glad that you're making this contribution, not just to language teachers, but to educators and to to all people. So, and I, and I listened to a previous interview of yours, and I, I think you do come off very genuine, and you really believe in this idea of maybe lowering the temperature in the world, in the in the in the room or in the world. And uh, I think it's an apt conversation to have peace building. I think it's very good at this time, especially, but at any time, this happens to be just a, an extremely tense time with COVID-19 and with uh, politics all over the place. And in my country, there's just a lot of um, hate going around and division. So, um, you know, I am very um, intensely engaged with the whole peace area. Uh, because of history, where we are right now, um, I can't tell you how how strongly I feel about this um, as a person uh, and as a teacher um, and as a as um, a person who wants to love and give instead of uh, fighting. Hmm. Well. Let's before we jump into the book. Let's let's talk a little bit about your background. You got a bachelor's and a master's in Russian. I, I've interviewed a previous guest on the show, and she also got a master's in Russian. And my question to her was: Are you, were you the type of person in high school and university where you sought out a challenge because Russian just doesn't <laughs> seem that easy to me? <laughs> well, um, how did you know? That is exactly why I took it, because um, I thought that this was the hardest subject I could get. Now, um, in actuality, physics was would probably have been the hardest subject I would ever take. But um, in, my, in my field of the humanities uh, and language, um, I chose Russian. Uh, number one, I liked the music. Uh, and I like the the novels, um, but I I know I took it because it was the hardest thing, and I wanted to challenge myself. So you have that chip in your mind, yeah. where you like yes. you like a challenge. Oh yeah, oh yes. So what, what's it like for you then to meet people who don't have that chip when you're because I I, I struggle with that as a teacher, where. Mm. Um, for me, I maybe I, I pursued music not because it was a challenge. I mean, it, it was the, the it wasn't the main reason I pursued music. I pursued it because I loved it, and it turned out no to be passion. a challenge. With passion, right? And I worked so hard for it, and then or someone like you who cho- who chose this challenge and you worked so hard for it. Do you have advice for teachers who like? Sometimes I struggle with that, where there's a disconnect between myself and a student. Now I know they're they're not in my class for the same reasons that maybe I took music. But sometimes it is hard for me to empathize with someone who doesn't have the same work ethic or same standard, especially someone like, like even for you to talk to me, like I, I wouldn't go out and pursue Russian just because it was difficult. How do you deal with students or other people around you that don't have the same sort of ideas about challenges and things like that? Okay. What I do um, is I try to find out, uh, and this is a natural thing, 
uh, this is not a plan. I just try to find out what is each person interested in. Um, and I try to bring out people so that I know who they are. Um, and I get to know their inner soul a little bit. I mean, they start telling. If you ask questions about themselves, then they they just start telling you things that um, you just wouldn't believe. Um, and then I try to structure activities so that people can uh, can keep on going and talking about things that they care about. Uh, you know, they can they can write, they can draw, they can uh, speak in small groups, they can do a number of things. Uh, and I try to work it out so that um, everyone is maybe doing the same activity, but with choice, with some degree of choice. Um, I, I'm trying to think of exactly. Um, I have very few. Uh, I have very few cases in which students um, were just indifferent mm. or not not wanting to be there. Um, in fact, it was so it's rare to me, and I think it could be because I'm focusing on them as individuals and as members of the group. Um, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm doing great things or whatever. It means that I just, I really want to know them uh, and I respect them so much. And so maybe that's why um, I don't find, I don't find very many losers or, or you know, foot draggers or anything like that. Um Something I want to share um, from one of my uh, teacher ed classes um, at uh, the state university here, I I taught as an adjunct part-time uh, over a number of years after I uh, retired from the University of Maryland. Um, in, in one class... Um, students were asked to um, to talk about their culture. And we had people from all over the world in this class. Um, well, not exactly. I mean, there were about 15 cultures, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, one, one student uh, got up and he, he showed a picture of young, he was from India, and he was talking about the caste system mm -hmm. in India and how it had been part of his life, but how how he had sort of risen above it. He was in he was in the highest uh, class, the Brahmin uh, caste, mm -hmm. um, and so. He could have gone all his life not really having a social conscience, you know, just uh, breezing along in, in, uh, in a situation where he was the top dog, where he, he and his family um, were to be, you know, totally respected um, just because of their caste. Mm -hmm. But he, was, he showed us a picture of three little girls 
on a on a swing, and uh, one of them was very light skinned, and two of them were dark skinned. This picture is in your book, right? Yeah. Did you see it? Yeah, I saw it. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. So my student, his name is Parth, and I just heard from him today from India. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's so amazing. Uh, my students get in touch with me. It's it's just uh, the light of my life. Anyway, he brought this picture of these three girls, and uh, he talked about discrimination, free home delivery. And he was he was talking about how um, the girls of the darker skin were not supposed to be there. They were not supposed, I mean, they were the children of servants mm. and uh, they were not supposed to talk to um, the kid with the lighter skin. And here they were chatting and having a good time. Um, and Parth kept talking about, look, um, prejudice and discrimination can be in your own very house and in your own neighborhood and in your own country. And you can actually not even notice it uh, if you if you don't want to. Um, and he, he went on and on talking about how um, his eyes were opened and then after he talked, one of the one of the other grad students in the class um, said she wanted to say something. Okay, uh, let me back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Parth was talking about the Dalit. The Dalits are that's a new name for the Untouchables. Okay, and these uh-huh. Untouchables were there in his picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and not supposed, not allowed by law. Uh, earlier in, earlier in the century, they would not have been allowed uh, to be anywhere near uh, somebody of another caste. They were actually considered to be below all castes, below all human castes. Mm. In other words, if you're below all the humans, that makes you not a human. Mm. Uh, that's how serious. It used to be. Um, and the vestiges of it are still there. Um, that kind of discrimination has been made illegal, but the vestiges are still there. Anyway, after he talked, um, another person from India, a woman, said she wanted to have a minute uh, to say something. And she said that she came from the Dalits. She was, yes, yes, she was um, in the family of untouchables uh, or Dalits. And the whole, the whole place just, uh, nobody could, nobody could believe it. Um, It was a, it was a moment of intense learning and Gross for everyone to see in a in a in one class the uh, the upper class and in our um, graduate school class um, to see one cast and then 
consider people being below all human castes. And there, there was one of each person in that group. Um, and it's, it's just said something to me about um, the need for discrimination to be faced and uh, the need for people to, to wise up and uh, talk to each other and um, just like Perth, uh, he was he was very engaged in trying to uh, get past these social barriers. Um, that's part of his life. He part of his commitment is to uh, try to break down these barriers. So that's the kind of thing I like to do. That is a that's a very dramatic example, but I try to get people to talk about themselves where they are from what they think, what their culture gives uh, to them in terms of value, values and beliefs. And um, I've been very lucky because um, for a long time, I have taught uh, graduate classes in teacher education, language teacher education. And uh, I have had great freedom to do what I think is right and to um, use my own methodologies. Um, and I, I can't uh, actually express the depth of my gratitude for, for being around these students, the student teachers that I have been with and also doctoral research candidates. Um, they teach me so much. I don't know if you if you have got the same uh, experience, Jonathan. But well, it's. I think it can be difficult for some people, um, and yeah, I, I think some people, including myself, tend to try to stay away from situations like that just out of yes. fear. Well, uh, that's what, true. Like when uh-huh. you when you before you finish your story, I thought, okay, what's going to happen? When you said the other when the other student said, I want to say something, right? If I was the teacher in that class, I think I would have been scared. Uh oh, what's going to happen? And how am I going to be able to handle it? it? Turned it turned out okay, but like for me, I try to avoid any. I mean, I was in a class in college. It was the Arab Israeli dispute class, and and kudos oh to, and oh kudos to the teacher. I mean, he was amazing. I mean, he tried to teach the curriculum down the line. There were people from Jewish descent there. There were people from Palestinian descent there. There were people from Egypt. There, it was all over. I think at the end, we okay. tried to do a model UN. He tried to keep it very civil. Um, the curriculum was based on his book, and it didn't come off as biased at all. He was very calm. He tried to engage in a very sort of non-emotional manner. And I thought he did – and looking back, I, I got to give this guy credit. Um, he did a great job. Keeping the emotion, the, the the emotion in the room, to a minimum, and there's lots of emotions when you talk about the Arab-Israeli dispute. Oh yes, course. oh yes. Um, so I've had experiences like that. I, I taught at a, a, a school in in Sydney when there was we had we were talking before we recorded. I had something similar that you had at the University of Maryland, where it was a culture day, and oh, every yeah. and the, so all the Vietnamese students would have a booth, and all the Korean students would have a booth. And even that was, I remember I, each teacher was assigned as, as to be the part of the group. 
So for example, one teacher would be with the Korean students and one teacher would be with the Vietnamese students. And I remember I was sort of with the Vietnamese students and I was, um, I guess I was, I was working with them on what we were going to do for the booth. And I was sort of the liaison person. And even that, I thought, I don't know if I should be doing this. Like, I don't know if I should be the, you know, oh, so, gosh, right, right, you know what I mean? Right. Like I, I shouldn't be leading oh, this yeah. group. And, and I, and I, I had, I think it takes a certain type of personality to handle these situations. I mean, you obviously have a very warm, caring, I can just tell from talking to you, but personally, I, um, I'm wary and I would tend to avoid any situation that could cause conflict in, in the room. Well, you know, I agree. And probably most of the people who are listening uh, to us um, might feel reticent to, um, to allow the kind of talk that, that maybe goes on in my classes. And so uh, perhaps we should, maybe we should just say that mine is a different experience. Um, and I have, I've just been, um, I have been freer than a lot of people have been. Uh, both when I was teaching languages, I taught English, Russian, and German. Um, and uh, worked with ESL and English as a foreign language uh, for most of my time. Uh, but then, um, even then, I tried to bend the rules. Uh, but I, I know that a lot of people have a personality that, that is more cautious than I have. And I really um, are more introverted sometimes. Uh, and for, for a lot of students, maybe they don't want to tell very much about themselves. Uh, I haven't found that in my own teaching. And I've taught, you know, in New York and Alabama and Maryland and uh, Pennsylvania um, universities at those places. So I haven't really found um, people who, by means of personality or culture, just did not want to be involved. Um, but I know, I know that that happens all the time to a lot of people, to a lot of teachers where uh, students, they might, number one, they might feel unmotivated because they are not interested in the language uh, for some reason, or maybe they've had a bad time, uh, maybe too anxious uh, or too perfectionistic about uh, uh, being, you know, super good all the time. And uh, I know I am that way, uh, perfectionistic. But uh, for some people, it just gets totally in the way. Um, and then there are the students who don't want to be there at all because of they're feeling forced. Mm -hmm. They feel that they have to be there because it's mandated that they take so many years of English or uh, in, um, I was in, I was in some of the Baltic states, you know, near Russia. Um, and at the time, everybody was being forced to learn Russian, mm -hmm. uh, just as much as they had to learn their own language, they were being forced. And, uh, 
So a lot of students don't, they want more agency. They want more, uh, have, they want to have a sense of decision-making um, and have a little choice. Well, I'm thinking um, about it. I'm it, thinking about it now. Uh, like when I was in university, I, I was, I had to do a compulsory science course and, oh, a, compul- God, yes. and a compulsory oh. math course. And I'm just, oh, yeah. I'm thinking now, you know, it's funny where I'm thinking about it now that if I was, you know, I was forced to take the class and I went in kind yeah. of unmotivated. I just thought, you know, I'm just going to do whatever I need to do, get to get the grade and I need get to focus out, on right. whatever. But I'm wondering now if, if the teacher was as warm as you are and talked about <laughs> peace or peace through math or peace through science, I think it, oh, might, yeah. I, I, it might actually resonate with me thinking about it now. I, I think, whoa, this is different. <laughs> like, the, yeah. This person has some empathy that I, I I have to be here, and you know, but they're they're thinking about. I think yeah, just the the idea that they're reaching out and and thinking about my feelings would 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 would, would be something, right? Oh yeah. Um, now, my brothers are you know they come from a scientific point of view, both of them. Uh, uh, but I. Uh, I was very good at math, but I was a disaster in uh, the sciences. And I kept waiting, waiting and hoping for a teacher to, number one, know my name. Which they never did. They never did. Uh, uh, and it's not, at, at the time, it was just uh, lecture classes. Right. Big classes, right? And big classes. And I'm not just talking about science. It could be virtually any subject. Uh, But uh, I felt totally forced to be there. And nobody reached out to me. And I felt like a number. Um, And all I wanted was a human touch, you know, just a a voice of caring. And um, maybe the fact that I didn't get it in various classes that I was forced to take um, made me very sensitive about how students might feel because I was um, I was definitely put off. And uh, at this time uh, in my life, I would like to go back and I would not mind studying certain of these things. Um, as a matter of fact, um, biology and botany those things I am very interested in now mm. because I I care about uh, the environment and I'm, I'm very concerned about ecological peace. That's one of the things um, uh, I'm, I'm giving a meditation, not at, not at Jolt, but at another conference, a meditation on uh, Mother Earth and uh, our relationship to the environment uh, in a in a very peace like, uh, compassionate approach. Can I go anyway. back? To, can I go back to something you said um, uh, when you were when you said you were in these large lecture halls and you felt forced oh, to take it and you didn't yes. have the connection? Is that one reason why you decided you wanted to pursue educational psychology as a master's and as a PhD? You know, I. <laughs> All right, this is very weird, very funny. Uh, yeah, that was one reason. Uh, but let me tell you a logistical thing that happened. Hmm. Um, 
you know, here I am. I had graduated from university well, with a bachelor's in Russian. Uh, and I had gotten married and moved to Boston from my family home in Florida. Um, and I applied. Listen, this is really funny. Um, I applied to a department in language teaching with the expectation and hope and understanding that I would be uh, able to pursue the teaching of Russian. Um, and I put that in my in my um, essay, you know, the application essay, mm -hmm. and I went on and on about why I wanted to do this. And so I was accepted into the program. Mm -hmm. But it turned out that they didn't have any concentration at all in Russian. Oh. Not what not, not any little thing. Um, and and so um, the head of the department said, oh, no, we don't have that, uh, even though that's what I applied in. And they had already offered me a fellowship. Wow. Um, and so they had a place for me. They just didn't have the, the subject. And so they said, okay, well, um, here are these other things that you could choose. You're going to have to flip into another subject area in education. So um, the first thing that caught my eye was educational psychology. Hmm. And I thought, this is perfect. This is actually perfect. Um, because um, I think I think I knew uh, from the times when I was forced to take subjects I didn't want that that this would help me uh, be a teacher who could really reach out to people and and I would actually know something about how it, um, through understanding personality theory and um, you know dynamics of a classroom and all these things and so it turned out to be wonderful so I got this psychology background that I never expected um, well well let's let, let's play let's play um, what if yeah. If if you were allowed to pursue Russian in the way mm -hmm. you you thought you were, would would you have ended up getting a PhD in Russian? Um, probably. I mean, Did I you actually get a PhD in Russian. No, I was in a <laughs> doctoral. I was in a doctoral program, but um, oh, the teaching was. Um, was abysmal. Actually, the teaching was was just rotten. Why? And this this is be oh because it was all grammar translation. Oh, uh, okay. Uh -huh. Okay. And um, and actually, most of the classes, the Russian classes, were taught in English. Uh, -huh. uh anyway, it it was just a total disjunct. Um. And I was in the first, this was at Yale, and I was in the very first class of women in the graduate school. Yeah, let's jump back into the book again. It's uh, Peace Building yes. in Language Education. And yes. Let's, let's jump into some topics, um, I guess a little bit related to gender equality, but the book kind of starts, off with, starts out with an anecdote from one of your co-editors, Tammy Gregerson, where yes. she was informally – talking to students at cafes in, was this at the 
UAE. Was she in the Middle East? UAE. She's and in she the just, Middle East. And I, I like the way the book starts. She sort of just says, you know, what is peace? And mm-hmm. you know, one, one person talked about sharing emotions or being kind. And another student talked about being open-minded and, and to avoid stereotypes. One student talked about gender equality. And, mm-hmm. and I thought that was a good way to start the book. I mean, you did also reference your six dimensions of peace in lang- in in the language of peace approach. Um, now that now I guess I guess I have two questions. One, so you talk about the the dimensions of peace um, in the book, and also uh, Peter McIntyre references it in his chapter as well. Can you talk a little bit about the the impetus for? this dimensions of peace, because I believe it's referencing to something you did 2013 about. So can you talk about your six dimensions of peace? And then also how did, how did this book come together? How did you end up choosing the editors and, and the, uh, the, the chapter authors? Okay. Well, let me talk about the first, let me answer the first question, which is um, about this, about these uh, types of peace. Um, I had I had a strong sense that most people think of peace in the, in terms of nationality and uh, you know uh, country culture kinds of things and conflict, war, um, all of the obvious kinds of things that you see in the newspaper or on TV, mm-hmm. and I thought that that is absolutely right. That is a crucial area, but isn't peace bigger than that? Um, And so I read something um, by a colleague named Anita Winden. Now she is, uh, she wrote some wonderful things about peace. She actually was um, a language education uh, professor uh, before she switched over to peace full time. At any rate, she had the same idea as I did, which was that peace is so much more than just whether countries are fighting it out. Um, and so she and I both at different times came to the, and so just like the students at Tammy's cafes over in the Middle East, um, Anita and I in our separate ways came to the idea that we have to start with internal peace. Um, that is, if you don't have a sense of a peaceful self, or if you, if you, you know, I, yes, every, all of us get upset uh, sometimes, but you, if you don't have a quiet place in your mind to come back to, then it's awfully hard to have peace in the family or peace with friends. Um, and if you're if you're always upset and don't have a chance to find inner peace, then what happens in relationships between groups? If you're in if you're in um, say a, a racial group, um, being being upset and concerned and uh, um, not able to calm down uh, will will get in the way and may contribute to uh, forms of conflict that don't help. 
Well, isn't it the uh, same idea that you need to love yourself first before you can truly love somebody else? Yes, it's it's a similar idea. Um, let me let me modulate that a little bit though. Sure. Um, it's not it's not that you can love yourself a hundred percent and or you know eighty percent or fifty percent mm-hmm. and then that's it for all time you love yourself. Right. Um, you have to keep. Well, you, I'm telling you what you already know, of course. Um, but you have to keep on every day finding some source of calm. Uh, it may be spiritual. It may be psychological. It may be uh, literary. Uh, whatever you can do that brings you to a center point in yourself, and it isn't for all time. You know that. I know that. Everybody else does too. But um, yeah, for most, for a lot of people, including myself, it's a daily struggle. Like that's why that's why this, the meditation and the mindfulness movements really sort of taken off. Um, Right. I think it's really worthwhile. You know, even what they say, five to ten minutes of meditation every day is has so many benefits. So many. So many. So many benefits. Um, I have to remind myself. Because I just plop down in front of the computer and I start going and going and going. I have to remind myself um, to to take a few minutes. I have a friend who uh, calls these things spiritual breaks. So mm-hmm. you take five minutes every now and then. Uh, you can call it just a, a, a peace break. You can call it anything you want. But anyway... Well, it's it's mental and it's physiological. There, there's a new book that just came out called uh, Breath. Oh uh, yes, oh, yeah. The for, the forgotten was it the forgotten art of I, I I forget the the full title. It's a great book, and he was talk he was talking about in the book. There's this phenomenon nowadays. You were, you were mentioning your computer. There's this phenomenon with office workers who end up they they don't breathe, so they're at the <clears> computer. <throat> they're in this state of doing twenty things at once. And they just stopped breathing. They were like monitoring them and they, they, their breathing was really erratic and they basically stopped breathing. So this idea of a peace oh break, God. it's also this idea about take some deep breaths break and get your body, yes. you know, you're in this state of you know, distraction, yeah. constant distraction, right? Well, that's what it's all about in, in our day and age. You know, people get frantic. Uh, right. <laughs> and so we... Uh, so we panic, you know, without even knowing it, we we could stop breathing or we can breathe very shallowly. Um, you probably don't know my early work. My Well, actually, for three decades, I worked with language learning strategies. And one of the strategies was deep breathing. Uh, and it was for uh, especially for anxious learners. But it could also be for anxious teachers or tired teachers or what kind of uh, deep breathing did you did you utilize or recommend? Well, uh, it was you know for me it was very primitive. It was it was just uh, breathing deeply and slowly and just calming down. Now there are all kinds of ways to to do it, and it can be part of uh, real meditation. I was making it ultra simple, probably because I. Uh, I didn't know about mindfulness at that point. Well, the you know? simple thing there, there's been a couple studies coming out of New York. This six six breaths in, six breaths out, and I think uh. it's supposed to last over a minute. It's supposed to last around a minute, 
And oh, um, that's good. So the, that's good. And they and they've been using it. They were using it, I believe, to treat people who had who were affected by the nine eleven attack and had um, they actually had dust in their lungs. A, a few. Oh. Di- they, they were treating a few different ailments, both physical and mental, and they were they kept on sort of coming back to this six breaths in six breaths out over the course of a minute like you you stagger it i, I don't can't remember exactly but it, it was a very sort of simple thing and if you could get the people to do it they could really they were finding like um tangible benefits they were publishing about oh now that is really good i'm gonna have to ask you later a source on that yeah because, I'll send uh, you the, i could really yeah, I, don't, I could really use it um what it was when definitely they, cited in that book, Breath. If you buy the book, Breath. Oh, yes. Um, I'm going to buy that. It's, it's definitely in the citations there. Okay. Well, I will look for it there, too. Um, one thing I wanted to mention that uh, since we're talking about um, inner peace, and we'll get to the other kinds of peace in a minute, uh, but the inner peace is so important. Um, I have learned, for, I have friends who are Buddhists, actually, they are Jewish Buddhists. Um, oh, interesting. And one of them, yeah, one of them has taught me uh, a little about loving kindness meditation. Uh, and one of the one of the meditations is simply to breathe in and imagine um, yourself, and then feeling kindness to yourself, um, actually being intent on being kind and, kind and compassionate, and then moving outward to someone else. Uh, it could be a person that you really like. It could be someone that you don't like. Uh, but uh, everyone needs love and kindness. And so you're breathing not just for yourself, but then you are uh, spreading compassion and kindness to another person. And it's a, you know, somebody, it's not like, like just to the world. It's you, somebody tangible that you can think of. Um, and I really like that because, uh, number one, it centers me. Number two, it reaches me out to somebody else. Um well, it's similar also, to, to prayer, isn't it? Uh, without the breathing part. Like if you're praying yeah. for someone, isn't that similar? Yes. Yes, it's very similar. Has there it's ever very, been scientific, scientific studies about – I'm always curious about that. About my, prayer? My mother, my mother really believes in the power of prayer, and she sort of convinced me. I, I would say I'm not overly a religious person. But whenever mm-hmm. I go on a flight, I'll ask my mother to say a prayer, and it always makes me feel good. <laughs> you know, if someone's, well, you know, someone going through a tough time, I'll ask my mom to tell, you know, give them a prayer. And uh, it's definitely, I, I wonder if there's ever been objective studies about about prayer, about what the effect oh, yeah. of it is. Oh yes, actually, there have been some uh, some studies, I think, in Japan about praying over um, over a plant. And then mm-hmm. not praying over another plant. Uh, I think I've heard about something like that. Yeah. Very, you know, very controlled scientific studies of the effect of prayer. And uh, I, I think it's prayer by somebody who's right there with the mm-hmm. plants. And then 
prayer by people at a far distance. Uh, mm. And I know, I cannot tell you the citation, but the prayer has made a real difference uh, in, a, in scientific studies about the, the health and life of beings who are other than ourselves, not human. Um, and so there have also been studies about praying for people who are um, unhealthy or uh, concerned or upset or, you know, somebody needing prayer and compassion and how distant prayer can actually help someone um, that, you you know, prayer around the world. And um, it's a fascinating subject. I want to know more about it. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. just a novice. Well, well, I think it it relates to, again, this figure in your book, um, where you talk about the six dimensions of peace, and it it does start with the with the inner peace. And I I guess we should talk about that uh, quickly. Let's talk. Tammy, Tammy Gregerson was classifying inner and interpersonal peace. And then you also had this table 1.2, where you had you did this activity on on Maryland Day, um, Mm -hmm. where you had sort of taken some 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 data, some qualitative data from people, and you were grouping, was it the definitions of peace? How, what, what exactly was um, yeah. the, the question? What, okay. Um, I had asked them, or we had asked them, um, to answer, to, to take the stem, peace is, and then finish the sentence. Got it. Okay. Or, write, you know, write a paragraph, finish the sentence uh, about peace is whatever. And um, so it turned out that... So this was um, 2010, Maryland Day. Yes. Outdoor event called Explore Our World. Okay. Yes, yes. And at, okay, when comparing with Tammy's, Tammy's students were concerned about inner peace and interpersonal peace. And it was really very clear. Now, what what we found out, or what in my little study, informal study, uh, was that just about half the people were interested in interpersonal peace, you know, friendship, caring, love mm-hmm. with family or friends, um, intergroup peace, say uh, men and women or various races or various religious groups. That's intergroup peace, intercultural and international peace. Uh, about half of the people were interested in talking about peace as being in those areas. Mm-hmm. But then um, just one out of five talked about inner peace. Uh, it was strikingly less than what mm-hmm. Tammy found in her in her sample. Now, her people uh, were from the Middle East, but also from other countries and other regions of the world. Um, But um, I was interested that 10 years ago, we didn't find that many people who were um, thinking about peace is inner peace. Hmm. Um, it It was really interesting. I have a strong interest, as I mentioned, in um, peace 
in our relationship with the earth, you know, like taking care of the earth and not exploiting and tearing up the earth, not burning down the rainforest in the Amazon, uh, uh, you know, not not polluting uh, the seas with our plastic, um, mm-hmm. the plastic mess that we keep throwing in. Anyway, so I'm concerned about that. And back in 2010, hardly anybody talked about peace in relation to the earth at, at our Maryland day. Um, it, it was really, um, it was shocking to me at the time. It's even more shocking to me now um, to think that at that point, uh, people were not really considering so much the relationship with with the earth and, and being peaceful and compassionate uh, with the earth. Uh, and so right now, I think about all, let me tell you, we have huge long lines of cars, uh, people who are going to bread lines, for example, because they don't have food. And this, this could be, you know, people who normally had jobs and they don't have them anymore. Um, anyway, I'm thinking if there is a way to somehow uh, work it around so that um, so that food and livelihood are abundant and can't just be ripped away by uh, coronavirus, uh, you know, by a pandemic. There well, might be some I, way. <laughs> this idea about ecological peace, I think it's, it's something that's very, as we're talking about language teaching, I, I would be, mm-hmm. like I mentioned earlier in the interview, I, I, I'm, I try to st- steer clear of emotional uh, things. But I would say, now you, you have a lot of um, act, classroom activities, both on starting from page 35 and page 248 in the book. For me, mm-hmm. listening to this, I think I could latch on to that, where I could... I could develop mm-hmm. some activities or or build off your activities, and you you're starting to see it in some of these books where you you have a chapter about the the ocean of plastic, or you have yeah. a chapter about global warming, and you're learning English through the these topics. For me, I'm also That's deeply nice. concerned about the environment, and um, I think I could I. So what you're saying is you, you can develop these classroom activities. For for any of these dimensions, right? It's not it's not like you have to stick to one when you're when you're, right. when you're using these activities, right? Um, in fact, well, there is um, you know I'm planning to do another book that um, has even more of the activities for environmental peace, ecological peace, because oh, right. it's when's such that, a when's that coming out? When's that? Well, first it has to be accepted. You know, it's out for review right now. So I, sure I don't know. <laughs> I'm, my fingers are crossed. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if crossing fingers is a thing in Japan or not. But anyway, is, do people know what that means? Yeah, I, I don't know if crossing okay. fingers is a both. Here's the two things crossing fingers and the knocking wood. So I definitely don't oh, right, think knocking right, wood right. is a thing in Japan. Uh-huh. So I don't know what Japanese people think when I knock on wood. Right. I really, I, I think they're confused. Crossing fing, yeah, crossing fingers. I don't think that's a thing here as well. Maybe it's, it probably isn't. But anyway, uh, to everybody who's listening, it just means 
I'm hoping, I am praying, I am just, you know, hope actually means that there is a, you have a belief that something can happen right, that this will work out. So when you, when you're crossing your fingers, you're actually saying, hey, I think this could happen. So um, I feel one of the reasons that I am so interested in uh, activities for ecological peace is your attitude toward them, uh, that this is something you could latch on to. Uh, it is actually something that a lot of people can get, a lot of students would like, a lot of teachers would like, because it is objective, it is not emotional. Uh, you can actually get quite passionate about it, but it is, um, you know, you don't have to disclose your inner self. Uh, it is something that is so important to the world. And um, uh, it's challenging, but not, uh, you know, it's, I think it's available to anyone. Uh, any teacher or student could get into this whole issue uh, because most of us are realizing how crucial it is to um, the life of humanity. The book is Peace Building in Language Education, Innovations in Theory and Practice. Um, Rebecca, it's already been about an hour. I don't want to take more of your time and energy. You have a big slate of presentations to do this weekend. So I think we can kind of, we can kind of wrap it up on this. I'm, I was sorry. Did I interrupt you? What, what were you saying? No, no, no. I was just thinking about how wonderful it is to talk about these things with you and with everybody who's there. I really well, I, am. I, thank you so much. And if you have time in the new year, I'd love to have you come back on the show and we can discuss your, your chapter in the emotional roller coaster of language teaching. Sure. Um, I would like that. Anything else, really? Okay. Thank you again for coming on Lost in Citations. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. And I wish I could see everybody. Uh, one day, well, one day I'll meet you. Uh, I'll be thinking about everyone. And I really appreciate the chance to talk with you, Jonathan. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.